Now, this morning we continue our studies this term in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And today, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Just to remind us, this letter was written to the Christians, to the church in Ephesus, to encourage them. They felt weak and marginal in the culture of Ephesus. And likewise, we study this letter in order to be encouraged because, I guess, we feel weak and marginal in the culture in which we live. And Paul's way of encouraging them is to teach them and us who we are as Christians and as a church, our identity. And so as we sit here listening or as we listen online, Paul says, this is who you are. This is who we are as a church. Now, that might seem obvious to us, but it's not, Paul says. And uh, as I have studied this letter and preached it, it strikes me week after week that it's almost as if a real deep knowledge of who we are as Christians and as a church might be elusive to us. It is extraordinary who we are. It is extraordinary what this local church actually is. It doesn't feel like it or look like it. It doesn't feel or look like it when, in a Sunday, everything goes wrong as it has. But this group of people, and those who come to the other services... Well, there's nothing like a local church on the earth. Right, let's read what is not an uncomplicated bit. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And what Paul is saying there is, remember that at one time you Gentiles and the Jews were the circumcision. They called the Gentiles the uncircumcision. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, please keep your Bibles open, and there are some headings on the inside of the service sheet, but let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we pray that you would help us understand what your Word says, and through the Holy Spirit, be affected by that understanding. Amen. When we lived in London a number of years ago, one of the days I remember most vividly in London was the 7th of July 2005, the day of the London bombings. My usual route to work was on the Northern Line, And if you traveled on the London Tube, and if you have traveled on the London Tube, you will know the form and the etiquette. Everyone sitting or standing, lost in their own worlds, barely making eye contact, talking strictly forbidden. Half an hour into the journey that morning on the Northern Line, the train stopped, and we were all evacuated. The explanation, a massive power surge course, it wasn't a power surge, as we all know, but then they didn't know what had happened. And for the rest of that day, and it was a very vivid day, as you can imagine, for those of us living in London, the whole transport system was shut, and that's a lot of people on the streets, and everybody was talking to everybody else, walking home. I remember talking to a policeman, and members of the emergency services. And when the tube reopened the next day, people were wary, I guess. But on the tube the next day, people made eye contact. They talked to one another. And it lasted about a week. And then we reverted to type. A couple of years ago, there were a series of stickers appearing on the central line, I think it was, in the tube, illegal but designed to look official. Here's uh, what two of them said. Don't acknowledge fellow passengers or sustain eye contact for more than a second. Urban neutrality must be maintained. Another one uh, made to look official. No eye contact, penalty, £100. And a tube carriage, in some ways, is a picture of the world the cities, the towns, the communities in which we live, urban neutrality with no contact. And of course, it is at best neutral. It is often uh, not neutral, but uh, disunited in a much more uh, intense way. Our communities, our families, our society, our world, the state of humanity is, by definition, not united, but separated, alienated from God and from one another. And it's not hard for us to see that in our families, in our communities, in our streets, in our schools, in our universities, in our workplaces, in this country, in every other country, 
and in the world. It's just how the state of humanity is alienation from one another, however way you cut the cloth. And that is who we are by nature. Now, chapter 2 of Ephesians is in two bits, verses 1 to 10 and uh, verses 11 to 22. If you weren't here last week, do listen online to verses 1 to 10. But they're in two bits, 1 to 10 and 11 to 22. And in 2, 1 to 10, in 2, 1 to 10, Paul reminds his readers of the dramatic change that has taken place in their lives, especially with respect to their restored relationship with God. And he's saying to his original readers and to us, I want to remind you of the dramatic change that has taken place in your lives with respect to the restoration of your relationship to God, the, the vertical dimension, if you like, of your conversion. And Paul's explanation in verses 1 to 10 follows a clear structure. Just glance up at it. Verses 1 to 3, this is who you were. And that uh, very striking phrase at the beginning of verse 4, but now. Who were you? You were by nature children of wrath, separated from God, dead, dead. But God has bought you alive in Christ with the power that raised Christ from the dead. You have been raised and are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. By grace, you have been saved. Who you were, who you are, with respect to your relationship with God. Now, when we preach these sermons, people have dialogue with us, which is great. And I've had a dialogue with someone who's not here, but who often comes to this service, and they said, was I really dead? And I said, you are dead. I was dead. You were dead. Everybody without Christ is spiritually dead. Dead, but made alive to God. Now, in the second half of the chapter, 11 to 22, that we read, Again, Paul is reminding us of dramatic change that has taken place in our lives, but now his focus is on our restored relationship with one another, if you like, the horizontal dimension of our conversion. And Paul's structure in part 2, 11 to 22, follows the same structure as part 1, verses 1 to 10. Just uh, look at uh, verse 13, there's the change, but now in Christ Jesus. So, verses 1 to 10, this is who you were in relation to God. This is what Christ has done, but now who are you in relation to God? Part 2, this is who you were in relation to your fellow humanity. You lived a little bit like people in a tube carriage, hardly making eye contact, let alone heart contact. But now, because of what Christ has done, you are reconciled to one another. And that's Paul's focus here in verses 11 to 22. Now, we preachers have a hard time with Ephesians because it is hard to get your head around this stuff. And it was hard for the Apostle Paul to explain it. And what he does is in two places in Ephesians, he prays 
that we would understand. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and then chapter 3, the end of the chapter. Two places, he prays that the church in Ephesians, and he prays that we here, and I'm praying this for us, and I want you to pray this for us as a church, that by the end of our studies in Ephesians, by the end of our reading of this letter, that we will understand. I don't want to pick on any of you by name, but I just looked at somebody, that the person I just looked at, or any of you, that you will understand who you are. Ordinary you and ordinary me, that we will understand who we really are. As Christians, but more than that, that we will understand who we are as a church. And we'll understand who we were before we were here and how we got here and where we're going. And we'll understand that this little motley crew in front of me is in fact a slice of God's new humanity. And you have more connections to eternity than you do to this city. And when people come in here, God willing, not because of anything we do, but because of what God has done in us, they will come into the community of God's new humanity in Christ and experience See, hear, feel God because we are His temple. That's hard stuff to understand. But when you do understand it, it's fundamentally transforming. So many sermons on church unity are like this. You get on with Him and sort out your grievances. Yet, Let's all work together this week at being humble and being reconciled and being united. That's what so many sermons on church unity are like. And that's chapter 4 of Ephesians. Be one in spirit. Love one another. Here's a different kind of sermon on unity. You are united in Christ. Therefore, just relish that. You know, what keeps us united as a church isn't what we do. It's God. We are united in Christ. And that's a very different way to approach unity. Now, this section, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, is primarily about our unity with one um, another. Now, I wish that Chalmers was a little more diverse than it is. One of the great uh, weaknesses of the evangelical church in the United Kingdom is that we are not as diverse as the Bible says we should be. We find it so difficult within a city like this to genuinely mix across cultures and across uh, kind of the typical social divides. And we come to churches for the wrong reason. We come to churches because we have some kind of affinity with the people there. But, but that, that is a weakness. But in reality, the people I see in front of me are much more diverse than we think we are. I mean, you probably, humanly speaking, 
only like 10% of the people in this room. Were you not Christians? You probably, humanly speaking, wouldn't do the same stuff as the people in this room. I mean, after all, some of you are golfers, some of you are Hibs fans, some of you are fans of other teams. There's not nearly so much that unites us as divides us, this motley group of people. But for some reason, week after week after week, we stay united through thick and through thin, through good times and through hard times. When someone suffers, why is it that other people kind of gather around? Why is it that when someone is engaged or married, even though we would love to be engaged or married, we rejoice with them. Why is it that when someone has a child, and we would give anything in the world to have a child, we rejoice with them? Because God has reconciled us together in Christ. Now, that's the essence of what Paul is saying. Let's look a bit at the detail, who you were, verses 11 and 12. Let me read them again. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And circumcision was the mark of being a Jew. It's what differentiated Jews from Gentiles. And Gentiles simply means everyone other than Jews. In the ancient world, there were Jews and there was everybody else. If you were a Jew, there was Jews and there was all them out there. If you were a Roman, you were either a Roman or a barbarian. It's very simple kind of bifurcation. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, the Christians Paul is writing to in Ephesus were all Gentiles. And as I said, in the ancient world, uh, there were Jews and Gentiles. If you were a Jew, there were Jews and everybody else, uh, Gentiles. And there was a real division between the two. I mean, if you were a Jew and you saw a Gentile over there having a baby, you weren't allowed to go and help them. Why? Because you'd be bringing another Gentile into the world. Now, that sounds shocking to us. But actually, if you think in your own heart, honestly, about the divisions that characterize humanity, it's exactly how it is. All these Christians in Ephesus were Gentiles. They are not from Jewish families. They have none of that heritage. They're not part of Israel. They are not part of the people of God under the old covenant. And if you were one of these Gentile converts and were listening to what Paul is saying, that you have received every spiritual blessing in the gospel. In fact, that temple that you longed to get into, in fact, that big wall that you were allowed to look behind and see the Jews in there, and beyond that wall, the Holy of Holies, where only one Jew once a year was going to go. Paul is saying to them, you are the temple. They would go, has that really happened? Now, Paul lays it out very clearly who they were. Now, this is who they were. This is who you and I were. I mean, we're Gentiles, I guess. Almost all of us here, if not all of us. We're not Jews by heritage. We were separated from Christ. How can that be in this period of time when Jesus has risen? How is that true? Well, 
I think what it means is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that's a kind of Jewish concept. He came first to the Jews. Jesus' own ministry was pretty much all with the Jews. Who were the apostles? Jews. Who were the Christians in Jerusalem? Jews. Separated from Christ. Paul goes on in verse 12, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the nation of Israel, the people of God under the old covenant. So they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Think of the great covenants of the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, whatever. They were covenants between God and the Jews. The Jews were God's chosen people and the Gentiles were excluded. Now there were promises within these covenants that Israel would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, but it hadn't happened yet. And so they were without hope, having no hope, no hope of salvation. And they were without God in the world, separated from God's covenant. That's who they were, outside the compass of God's saving power, lost and under God's wrath. Now, why is Paul saying this to them? That they might remember who they were that they might remember what they've been saved from. No heritage, no rights, no expectation of salvation without God in the world. Children of wrath, that is who you were. Now, the Bible sometimes says to us, I don't want you to remember that. So when it comes to guilt, the Bible says, or when it comes to yesterday in the Christian life, the Bible says, no, no, press on towards the goal and forget what is behind But there are some things the Bible wants us to remember. Two of them are here in Ephesians. Number one, God wants us to remember who we were. God wants us to remember. And you might kind of feel a little uncomfortable about this or your little hairs on your neck might just twitch up. He wants me to know as your minister, that I was in a pit under God's wrath. He wants me to know that I was a child of God's wrath, dead. And He wants me to remember that. Not so that He can say, why, lucky you so that I will never forget the cost of what it took to save me and the graciousness of God in doing so. He wants us to remember. When you remember who you were, without the intervention of God in your life, when you remember who these other people around you were before, without the intervention of God in life, then we will be liberated to live a mature, steady, strong, visionary, focused Christian life. When you remember who you were and where you are going to be for all eternity now, people do things like these people that we had on the screen earlier. They go and live in a country where, well, let's just be thankful when they go back to the States, they're able still to go. Or you go and live in a country 
I remember Lisa Carter telling me about Equatorial Guinea. I mean, it has got so many beasties. So, you know, they have to, every time they wash clothes, they have to use special chemical disinfectant because there are bugs that go in their clothes that if they bite the kids, they die. The last time Jason was with us, he held up this cobra that he'd kind of caught in the compound. I mean, to me, that's just no chance on earth. Why do they go? Not because they're especially brave, but because they remember who they were. Now, that's not an encouragement for you and I to go to Equatorial Guinea. There is no way, God, I'm ever going to go there. Somebody might remind me of that in the future. (laughs) Remember who you were. And of course, something else the Lord Jesus wants us to remember is whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, remember me. And that's the middle bit, verses 13 to 18, what Christ has done. Let's read them again. But now in Christ, Jesus, you... Uh, who were once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, if you're stuck on this, it's not easy, is it? You can ask Benj afterwards. He's doing a PhD on this, I think. Uh, Let me just tell you what, um, I'm going to tell you what it means, because you don't need a PhD. Benj would say that. You need the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. All of us can see. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You are no longer separated. You have been brought near to God and to one another by the blood of Jesus. You Jews and you Gentiles, how can that be? The blood of Christ means death of Christ, same thing. And Paul has a logic that he unpacks in verses 14 to 18. He begins by focusing on what Christ has done, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ has made us both one, that is, Jew and Gentile, reconciled. The person sitting next to you and you them, God has made you both one by his blood. The dividing wall of hostility between humanity has been broken one, and it was some dividing wall. A Jew could not even assist a Gentile woman in childbirth. It was impossible that these two Jew and Gentile could be converted. So how is it possible? Well, through Jesus Christ, who is our peace. Now, I want you to notice that phrase at the beginning of verse 14, for he himself is our peace. How do you use the word peace? So I used it yesterday with uh, some little people to whom I'm related. Please, can you give your parents a bit of peace? 
I'm sure that uh, some of the parents earlier on would feel that. Or, I was just so stressed out, but now I feel more at peace after my holiday. That's how we often think of the peace of Christ. That's not how the Bible thinks of the peace of Christ. The peace here is Jesus Christ himself. He himself is our peace. And peace means reconciled. It's the use of Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God, no longer separated and peace with one another, no longer divided. Think of the cross of Christ. Yet, Jesus hanging on that cross with his arms outstretched. There is a vertical beam and a horizontal beam on that cross. The vertical beam reconciles you and I to God. The horizontal beam holds together Jew and Gentile. It's almost as if Jesus has Jews and Gentiles in either hand, and he holds them together as his nails, hands are pinned to the cross, and he holds you with a person next to you in the deep bonds that are in Christ. Often in a wedding service a couple of weeks ago, I would say to a Christian couple getting married, you have no idea of the strength of bond you have in Christ. And they think, oh, I love them. And they do. And they promise to go on loving them. But the bond that unites them is not human love. The bond that unites them is not even their love for Jesus. The bond that unites them is Jesus' love for them. Christ in them. Horizontal, vertical beams on the cross. Peace with God. Now, uh, it is uh, soon Christmas, okay? Nine Sundays to go. One of uh, my favorite hymns, in fact, I'd like to sing it during July, but you just couldn't get off with it. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Peace is not some warm, fuzzy Christmas feeling. Peace is the reconciliation of men to God and men to each other. That's what peace is. And Paul says that Jesus' death has made one new man in place of the two. It's not that the Gentiles have been joined to the Jews or the Jews have been joined to the Gentiles. When Jesus died on the cross, he, he achieved... Uh, a new humanity in himself. He was the second Adam. He was the first man of the new humanity. And Christians are joined to Christ. They are not half Jew, half Christian, half Gentile, half Christian. They're Christians. Paul in Corinthians speaks of Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. It's a new humanity in Christ. And that new humanity in Christ, with Christ as the first man, the second Adam, is growing bit by bit, person by person, as people turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did Christ preach? Verse 17 and 18, he preached peace. And everyone, when you hear that, think he preached warm kind of atmosphere. No, he didn't. He preached peace, which means he preached 
Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, because God and sinners have been reconciled this way and that way in Christ. Peace is what Christ preached. Peace is what the apostles preached. And peace is what I... What am I doing now? I'm preaching be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to one another. Who we were, what Christ has done, and then thirdly, who you now are. It's not easy, this, is it? That's why you've got to pray the two prayers at the beginning and the end so you can sort out my clutter and understand it. It's marvelous when you do, though. I'm kind of on the edges of understanding of this. You know, you, you, kind of, you never kind of get it all, do you? you know? and, and all these big, thick commentaries in Ephesians, they don't understand it either. Even Paul didn't understand it. But, you know, you just put your toe in and you get some kind of sense of this. That, that God has done something astonishing in that we are closer in this building this morning to eternity than we are to the city, that we are a new humanity. Whether we're left or right on the political spectrum, big, tall, rich, poor, brainy, not brainy, boring, happy, whatever, we're one in Christ, new humanity. It's amazing. Who you are, and Paul should really stop there in verse 19, but he doesn't. He just adds something else to blow our minds. He says this So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And uh, Paul here describes this new humanity that they were part of and that you and I are part of. He contrasts verse 12 with verse 19. Remember verse 12, you were alienated, separated. And now verse 19, you are no longer alienated, you are no longer separated. Paul describes this new humanity as the household of God. That's about as opposite as it is to being far off. Now you are in the family of God, the household of God. The household of God is the church. Christ is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together. The whole structure is built on Christ. The apostles and the prophets, the Word of God is the foundations, and Christians are the bricks in the building as together we grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, that's what we are in Chalmers. Now, we are looking for a building, yeah? And uh, on a morning like this morning, when nothing works, I think, goodness me, we need a building. And we do need a building. I think we all know that. So do pray. Keep praying. But we don't need that kind of building, anything like as much as we need this kind of building. For we are a building. So, you lot, if I could put my arms around you and move you outside, we would still be God's building. We go up to the faith mission, we're still God's building. Outdoor worship next Sunday morning, we'd still be God's building. For what is the building? There is nothing in the New Testament about bricks and mortar. Nothing. Timothy, go and find yourself a new church building. Nothing like that. What is the building? 
Well, there's Jesus Christ in the corner. It takes its shape from him. That building looks like him. The people in it are like him. They speak his words. And that building has foundations. And that foundation is the apostolic. You prayed for that this morning. The apostolic church. That means the Bible. And it's got lots of bricks. You're the bricks. You're the bricks. And that's the building we want to put in. A bricks and mortar building when we get it. But what would I rather have? A bricks and mortar building or a living church to be minister in? It's chalk and cheese, isn't it? It's chalk and cheese. Some of these countries that we were praying for this morning, there is no chance on earth you're ever going to be able to build, build a church building with cement and bricks in these countries. But there are buildings all over these countries with Christ, with the apostles, and with Christians. Now, let me close with these uh, two um, implications. Just, just let me put a wee footnote in. When we do get a building, yeah, let's never, 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 ever lapse back into the misuse of New Testament or Old Testament language with a building. It is not a sanctuary. It is not a sanctuary. It's not. We are. The New Testament speaks of the temple in three ways. Christ is the temple. The church is the temple. The church people, and you are the temple. So when we get a building and go back into it, let's use it as it is, not as a holy place. It's not. We are. But we do need one. Let me close with this. Now, I want you to make the prayers in Ephesians chapter 1 and 3 a priority, that as a church in Chalmers, we will understand who we are and be deeply affected by it. I want you to to pray uh, that you will understand what this group of people is, reconciled to one another. And over the next two or three weeks as we study this, I want to encourage you, if there are divisions amongst you, to sort them. And don't worry about what you're going to say or what kind of email you're going to write or what kind of letter. Just sort them because you have already had them sorted because you're united in Christ. And love each other as people who will spend all eternity together. So, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, there's a cliché. But when it really happens in a church, it's an astonishing thing. Some of the most moving experiences I have had as a minister is people who would long to have children, cannot have children, are the first people to visit somebody who has a child because they rejoice with them in the Lord. That wouldn't happen out there. Or people go and support a grieving family in this city because they are in their church family. They don't really know them. Alan, Bert, you're all praying for him. That's just not going to happen out there. So be a real church. And if you're not a Christian and you're on the outside of this, the invitation is always there to come in. You can come along to church and be part of this community, but you do not inherit salvation by attending a Christian community week in, week out. You inherit salvation by turning to Jesus Christ and thereby become part of an eternal community with which this little church is a sub.
set. Now, I'm standing up here thinking that was just a whole pile of clutter for the last 40 minutes. It's not easy, this. We need to pray that we will understand who we are as Christians and who we are as a church. And if we do, we'll be steady, mature, strong, unflappable. And we will, like Jason, Lisa, Steve, Melinda, and all their kids, live our lives conscious of what we have been rescued from and where we will be for all eternity. Let's pray. Father God, these are complex, complex things. We pray that you would help us to understand them and live them, feel them and be affected by them. And we pray that we would be a real church, united with one another, with these deep bonds of peace. Because Jesus himself is our peace. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.